Welcome to Mind Reading Experts in Conversation podcast series. This project explores the patient experience through the prism of literature and personal narrative to inform self-care, patient-centered care and practice, as well as humanities research. Do doctors and patients speak the same language and how can we use narrative to bridge the evident gaps? These are the questions that animate the work. Mind Reading began as a collaboration between UCD Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, the Diseases of Modern Life project at Oxford University and the University of Birmingham, and expanded to include colleagues across the UK and Ireland and the School of English Drama and Film at UCD. Our intended activities comprise a series of explorations around the central theme of literature and mental health and function as independent events, but are brought together by their intent to explore the best ways of drawing on the insights of historical and literary research in contemporary medical practice in the field of mental health particularly. This podcast series, Experts in Conversation, brings together some of the key themes of the 2020 conference, which we postponed due to COVID-19, and is brought to you by the Humanities Institute at UCD and RCPI Archives. I'm Dr. Claire Hayes-Brady, your host for the podcast. I'm based in the School of English at UCD. This segment of the episode, Vaccinating Ireland, Facts, Fears and Fictions, from Mind Reading's Experts in Conversation series, sees Dr. David Grimes talking to us about conspiracy theories and disinformation in contemporary culture. David is a physicist, cancer researcher and author. His scientific work includes everything from how tumours use oxygen to why conspiracies tend to fail, with a strong focus on public understanding of science and medicine. David contributes to the BBC, RTE, The New York Times, The Guardian, The Irish Times, PBS and other outlets. He received the 2014 Maddox Prize and his first book, The Irrational Ape, Why We Fall for Disinformation, Conspiracy Theory and Propaganda, is out now from Simon & Schuster, UK. Thank you very much. I have to say everyone else has absolutely fascinated me and I can see the the research and the preparation that went into it. So expect the, the bar to drop dramatically here. But one of the things that really fascinated me there was how this is constant refrain is almost nothing new under the sun. So one of the things uh, in the very first talk, which I thought was really interesting, was that this uh, refrain in anti-vaccine literature to poison. Um, and then in Harriet's talk just after that, how one of the major arguments is about, oh, it's our right to choose. and the weighing up between the public good and individual good. And I suppose what's really interested me is how much has not changed since that propaganda of the uh, the 1800s and indeed even since the, the time of Jenner. One of the things is um, we often find when we look at old, the 1905 Anti-Vaccine League was mentioned there and some of the stuff that they use, the old snake and poison drawings, we still see in modern anti-vaccine uh, anti memes. I say modern in the in the loosest sense of the word as in they are contemporary, but the ideas they express are, are not new at all. So what I'd like to also talk about a little bit here is what has stayed the same and what, in, in my view, my very inexpert view, has changed uh, across that amount of time. So one of the things that really changed since the, the 19th century is quite how staggeringly fast the science has evolved. And I'm sure Don will get onto this a little bit and I won't uh, go too far onto it, but the level of progress we made in immunology in the early 20th century is very, very difficult to overstate. We went from a time where infant mortality was a real substantial problem, uh, where families expected to lose children, to the fact that that is almost a, a, a non event now. It, it, of course, it does happen, but nothing like on the scale it used to. And a huge amount of that is due to vaccination measures and things like that. So what we started seeing after the 1950s was a reemergence or a resurgence or a kind of a dark renaissance of the anti-vaccine movement in more mainstream circles. And there's a few different theories as to why this is. Now, they'd always been bubbling away in the background. 
estimates put them between five and 16% of the population, depending on where you look. It's very, um, it's not homogenous. It depends on the background of different people. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But one of the big factors that they thought maybe reduced, you know, public interest in vaccination was a little bit of complacency. From the 1950s onwards, you didn't really see people in iron lungs or whose bodies were twisted by polio and broken. You didn't see uh, your neighbor down the road whose child was deaf or had maybe lost their, their, their kids due to measles or things like that. In fact, the measles vaccine alone saves over a million lives a year in contemporary times. This is, you know, this I, again, this is not something that people say of, of my generation or, or even a few generations above me have any memory of. It doesn't exist for them. So there is a level of complacency. But we can't express everything we've seen in the past few years as a mere complacency problem. So in 2019, the World Health Organization declared vaccine hesitancy a top 10 threat to public health. And the reason they had to do that, it was not something they particularly wanted to do, was after a spate of massive measles outbreaks in particular. And one of the reasons it's often measles is that A, measles was almost virtually eradicated in places like the United States, um, but it's incredibly infectious. The ornaught of measles, and we've all talked about ornaught with COVID, is between 12 and 18. So you're expecting each primary case to affect 12 to 18 other people. And you expect one in a thousand of those people roughly to die, sometimes more, depending on what group get it, and a lot more to get neurological or hearing impediments due to it, and the misery of getting measles as well. And suddenly America, which had been declared vaccine or measles free in the year 2000, suddenly had massive outbreaks in New York and California, and oddly enough, a lot of very well-to-do places. Now, something that seems to be different to, in my mind to the 19th century when the Victorians were opining about the ignorant classes is that now vaccine hesitancy and particularly anti-vaccine activism is incredibly middle-class. It is a staple of being very well-off um, and one of the things we start seeing that in places like Uganda, where people are queuing up to get vaccines, whereabouts you have places like California, where people are trying to get vaccine mandates and religious exemptions from getting vaccinated in their schools based on their ideological grounds. And one of the things that we can look at, and there's a few things we need to break this down to, is why are people in the modern times, I mean, I can't speak to the, the, the 19th century, though I've been fascinated by everything I've heard, uh, why, why now do people have this dislike of vaccine vaccines and i think the first thing we have to realize is that vaccine hesitancy is a spectrum it's not a simple binary we've talked about the extremes the the anti-vaxxers and maybe you can talk some of the victorian health bodies may have been the other extreme uh, with their kind of moralistic uh, framing of it but it is not a binary the vast majority of people don't necessarily have a strong opinion on vaccination but they can be uh, engendered to have one so one of the things that we see when we have vaccine confidence crisis, crises, plural, unfortunately, um, we've seen it with the MMR vaccine in the UK when the fraudulent and now ex-doctor Andrew Wakefield made false allegations that it was linked to autism, which it was not, of course, that drove vaccine uptake down markedly. We've seen it in Ireland and Colombia and Japan and Denmark with the HPV vaccine, where suddenly there has been tremendous fall. We'll talk a little bit about that in a while, I hope, and I think Donald will as well. Um, I hope I'm not putting words in his mouth. But one of the issues is, and this can be extreme, by the way, in Japan, when before uh, the anti-vaccine propaganda hit, uptake of the HPV vaccine stood at about 70%. 
a year afterwards, it went down to 1%. Uh, this is like a staggering. Denmark went from 79% to 17. Ireland at its peak went from 86 to 51, 50. Um, we can talk about how Ireland turned that around in a, in a little bit as well, because I think that's very important on the medium of, of communication. But vaccine hesitancy is a spectrum. The vast majority of those parents who were not vaccinating their children weren't dyed in the wool anti-vaxxers. They are just simply afraid. They don't know what to believe. And there's a whole lot of psychological factors that actually make the job of an anti-vaxxer, a dedicated dyed-in-the-wool one, much easier. And one of them is a thing called the availability heuristic. Right? We are far more likely to remember negative or scary information about something and afford it far more weight than we are something that's neutral or even positive. Uh, so you always remember the, as, you know, the, the anecdote that you always remember the bad things, you never remember the good. That is very true with vaccination, particularly when the obvious benefits of vaccination are no longer as visible as they might have been for our parents and our parents' parents. Right? Uh, you know, I, I mean, I've never seen an iron lung in my life, and I'm sure my dad might have seen a few, and if I went back to my grandfather's generation, there'd be a lot more. Um, so that kind of mental heuristic that we use to, that shortcut that we associate, with, that's gone. And that, you know, is, is no longer a thing. So we don't see the benefits, but we see all the scary information. And one of the things that you mentioned uh, in, the, in the 19th century was that it was often, this, this messaging was targeted at mothers. And it's funny how things often don't change. We know that online, anti-vaccine disinformation is most frequently targeted at parents and particularly new parents. Uh, they are, they've got a life in their hands. They have no idea what to do with it. They're terrified. They don't want to make any mistakes. And what anti-vaxxers are very good at doing for their ideological reasons that they're invested in this, we can talk about that in a second, um, they really just want to win the game by not getting you to vaccinate. And all they have to do to do that is make you scared and make you think that if something bad happens to your child, it's your fault. It's on you. I mean, all the things, particularly mothers and also fathers, really don't need that kind of pressure. And it becomes a devil you know thing. Oh, well, it may be if it's a tiny effective side effect, I better avoid it. I better go with the devil I know. And in their head, that's safer. Of course, it's not safer. The balance of risk is always in favor of vaccination. That is why physicians and scientists always recommend it, because even it, it always is. But it's enough to give the perception with the thing called the availability heuristic. And when you go to think about something, you think about the scary thing. We saw that with the HPV vaccine in Ireland, when we talked to parents, they were like, oh, I read this thing on Facebook, though, and it was very scary. And you were like, this prevents 5% of all cancers worldwide. This could make cervical cancer and penile cancer and anal cancer and a whole host of unpleasant things, a, a, an unpleasant memory. But people don't see that because they're not thinking of that. They're thinking about the scary Facebook post they read about someone in a wheelchair who may or may not have ever existed. And certainly it's not substantiated this thing ever happened to them. So in that way, the propaganda has not advanced at all. It has become more multi-channel. It has become pop it into your phone at night. People don't have to do leaflets on anymore. They, they can target this. One thing I'd like to briefly point out is what makes someone a, I've talked about this spectrum, but let's go to the extreme end for a second because we did mention anti-vaxxers and we should maybe look at what motivates this. Um, and it's interesting because it goes back to the repetition of myths. So when you have the dedicated anti-vaxxers of this world, the one who propagate this information, it's the one who scare people. Um, the psychological traits that people have looked at inside these individuals is absolutely fascinating. So what we tend to find is that they are motivated by a feeling of certainty, that they know something, that they have access to special knowledge that makes them superior to you. And superiority is an interesting term because uh, narcissism and egotism are massively correlated with people that spread conspiracy theories in general, by the way, 
and anti-vaccine propaganda, which is one of the oldest of the conspiracy theories that fits under that canon. Because to be an anti-vaxxer, you must, by default, be a conspiracy theorist, because you have to take all this science and evidence and medicine and public health and put it in the bin and insist that you know more. So you are an obligate conspiracy theorist. So we do view anti-vaxxers as a subcategory of conspiracy theorists. So we see the same psychology in both, and that's not unusual. And the egotistical drive is phenomenal because it means that people can feel like they know more than anyone else, and they get a certain sense of satisfaction by propagating that. Uh, and I always find that's one of the strange ironies that a lot of people end up suffering at the whims of these people who are essentially doing this to, pl to placate their own ego. And that is incredible when you look at the public health damage it actually does. So I need to make the, uh, the clarification here that a lot of parents who don't vaccinate are not anti-vaxxers, but the victims of anti-vaxxers. Their choice not to vaccinate has been caused by that. And it is inter interesting if I could name some of the, the, the well-known anti-vaxxers, the, 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 uh, the Robert F. Kennedys of this world, whoever else, I'm sure we can't get sued for saying that. I'll try not to mention anyone who we can get sued for mentioning. But these people, they, will, they are resistant to correction. This is one of the really funny things about them because they will always consider themselves more correct than anyone else. Um, one of the most fascinating things is these narratives are often inconsistent. This gets back to the storytelling element. Conspiratorial narratives are often inconsistent. And one of my favorite experiments that was ever done on this was by Professor Karen Douglas over in the UK and her colleagues. And they took uh, narratives about Princess Diana, that two of them in particular, that she had been killed by the queen or that she had faked her own death. Conspiracy theorists could believe both of these at the same time. They had some kind of Schrodinger's princess where she was both alive and dead at the same time, as long as they believed that they knew more than everyone else about it. So you're going right back to egos, and you see this inconsistency with, with these kind of narratives. For example, COVID-19 is a hoax, but it's also a government plot, all, but it's, it's caused by 5G, and it's cured by this thing that Donald Trump said to use. And you have to stop them. These aren't consistent narratives. They don't care. Social media has made them multi-channel. They're not concerned about consistency. They're concerned about scaring people. Incidentally, um, what Professor Meany said at the very beginning was really interesting, uh, mentioning uh, the anti-Semitism of some of the early conspiracy theorists. We've actually seen that again. If you look at QAnon, who tend to be very anti-vaccine, uh, they are repeating blood libel stuff that was said about Jews in the first century and the 13th century. They are basically saying that blood drinking pedophiles control the world. And I, I find it fascinating that nothing changes. We're still using the same ancient myths. So the information deficit approach of trying to um, alleviate vaccine concerns in conversation is incredibly important to a degree. If you are dealing with a frightened parent who wants to know, who's heard this scared stuff and doesn't know what to believe, then talking to a physician or a scientist or anyone else and being gently communicated to, not admonished, not lectured, with a bit of empathy, talk through why these beliefs aren't true, that could be incredibly beneficial. But it's important to choose our battles. If you're trying to change the mind of anti-vaxxers, most of the research says you're wasting your time. And that's okay. We don't need them to join the club. We just need them to stop doing damage to the midsection. And I'll, I'll conclude by just mentioning how Ireland did um, reverse its, its, its HIV vaccine decline. We now in parts of Ireland have gone up above 90% of HIV vaccine uptake. And uh, where we have is very specific too. Um, Ireland had a unique situation and that immediately when this started, we had kind of known it was coming and there was a rapid reaction to it where physicians, scientists, public health bodies, parent groups got together and started producing reliable information to counter the anti-vaccine disinformation. And that was part of the puzzle that started to have a good effect within the first year. But I think to my mind, and maybe others will 
um, have other opinions, but I, I really do think it's a massive factor. I think the biggest single factor was a human one. So um, there was a young lady called Laura Brennan who had been diagnosed with termin termin terminal cervical cancer. And she read about this vaccine and the disinformation about it. And she was so outraged that there was a vaccine that could save other women from going through what she was going through. And she, and this is so admirable to me, she contacted the HSE and said, hey, I got a story, I wanna tell it. And the HSE, I'm so glad they did this. They went, yeah, we, we wanna hear the story. And some of you will have been familiar with Laura's campaigning. She was the most articulate and charming and brilliant person. And she was a bulldog for the truth. She was the, she was the availability heuristic that we never saw. And one of her lines that she, she said, and I used to think was so powerful, was I am the reality of an unvaccinated girl. She made it clear to the general public that it wasn't about phantom side effects and scary things. This is what could happen if you didn't get vaccinated. Um, Laura was an incredible campaigner and someone I was very lucky to be close to, and I'm sure Donald would, would echo that as well. Um, and even when she was dying, and she, she passed away on the 20th of March, 2019, but even then she was still campaigning to her final weeks and she was telling the documentary crew working with her, make sure you put footage of my body in. And I even was saying to her, Laura, is that not a bit like, you know, and she's like, no, people have to see what this is. And it remains like that was the strength of will. We were dealing with the force of nature when we talked about Laura Brennan, and we can't expect that to be in every situation. But now Ireland's vaccine, HPV vaccine levels have recovered massively. When other countries are still in the doldrums, we've gone up. And I think that really showcases that if you want to change people's minds, you have to change their hearts. You have to show them the alternative. And I'm no expert in that at all, but it's something I, I really think that we should bear in mind. I've yapped at you enough and I will move on, but thank you for listening. I hope some of that was useful.